broadcasting from the doing the most capital of the world. By way of New York, New York, via the internet. This is Bagels and Plantains, a podcast by, for, and showcasing every day, round the way, but always dope as fuck, multifaceted people of color doing the damn thing and doing it well. Every week, we and our guests will be sharing the blueprint and the stories that explore the intersectionality of being Black, Brown, bothered, and unbothered, while thriving and navigating their passions, spaces, and communities. I'm your host, Deidre E. Dehan. And I am your host, Christina Torres. And here we go. Our host, Deidre, is going to be joining us in a few, but that's okay. I have our co-host, our guest for now, Bunny McKenzie Mack. I'm going to let you guys know a little about about them. So Bunny McKenzie Mack is an anti-oppression consultant, coach, facilitator, and the creator and founder of Boundary Work and Radical Copy. As the former executive director of Art Plus Feminism, one of the largest social justice projects on Wikipedia, they have led global team of organizers working to correct skewed and biased content about marginalized communities on the internet. They hold two linguistics degrees from University of Chicago and currently pursuing a double master's degree in anthropology and sociology. Over the past five years, they've consulted with some of the largest for-profit and non-for-profit organizations to develop cultures of accountability that dismantle racism and gender inequity at the individual, interpersonal, and institutional level. Welcome to the show. I was just like, as I'm reading it, I've read it before, but now that I'm saying it out loud, I was like, oh shit, I've worked with them. (laughs) (laughs) I feel really, really honored that you're on here and I'm so excited for you to tell us a little bit more. I know we've touched upon it before on our pre-call, but what's the difference? I'll let you get into your backstory. But what's the difference between an anti-oppression consultant, a diversity and inclusion officer, an activist? What are, what are the differences? I think there are so many titles out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think the, I think the difference comes down to the person. Mm-hmm. And like in particular, right, because we know that a person can be, could have been an EDI consultant for 10 years, but they still have their own sort of like education work and learning work to do. So I think it definitely comes down to like where that person is, the ways in which they tackle equity work within the organization, right, within the small business, within sort of like community-based collectives. And so I think it really comes down to the politics of the person and the core beliefs of that person. I know that there are plenty of folks who, you know, are working in really large nonprofits and they are, maybe their title is like diversity inclusion officer or diversity inclusion director. And really they're doing anti-oppression work, but they're calling it diversity inclusion. And that meaning that they're using the title diversity and inclusion when that may not be an actual actual terms that they use in terms of their, their practice around, around dismantling whiteness within the organization, dismantling genderphobia or transphobia. But maybe they use those words because they're looking for an end. And, and we've reached a point, I think, within that space where diversity and inclusion are words that, that I think if this was like 10 years ago, folks would have been like, that's really scary to me, you know? <laughs> And now 10 years later, I think a lot of folks are like, oh, okay, this seems like more commonplace. I've read a lot of articles around diversity inclusion. I think I get what that means. For me personally, in in terms of my work, I use the word anti-oppression because I want to be like, as as it relates to what I do, be very direct around what I'm looking to accomplish. And for me, that means I want the work to be actively anti-oppressive. And that means I don't just want the folks to be at the table or in the room, but I, I want 
within the organization for there to be folks creating policies and folks creating pipelines that make sure that they can really identify the ways in which their organizations are being oppressive and weed that out. Yeah, that makes total sense. I saw a quote literally in a travel magazine as I was coming back and they interviewed John Leguizamo. So every time I see him, I'm like, oh, I got to this is my guy. I got to read what he's saying. Yeah. He was talking about uh-huh. his work with When They See Us. And one of, I guess, the journalists clearly knew who he was, was kind of like fangirling, you know, really saw him as one of the, like, the most amazing playwrights of our time in American theater, which most people don't know him about that. They know him about his drag role and, I don't know, Shakespeare with Leonardo DiCaprio and like all these little funny and freak, but no one ever really sees him as that. And he just spoke to that, that, you know, he, he makes sure that people know he's an artist and not an entertainer. And he's like an artist kind of shoves those really uncomfortable things in your face and does so knowing that there's at, there may be some cost to them financially or, or just credibility. But an entertainer is there to, to, and they're needed, but entertainers are there to kind of create escapism and not push their buttons. They're there to help, you know, people feel comfortable and conformed. And so... As much as entertainers are needed, he's like, I'm an artist. And artists are there to kind of put the people and the art and the politics first and make people feel whether that makes them uncomfortable or not. So I kind of like see that balance in between what kind of like, what is the difference? Like one is kind of like, I'm here to make sure everyone feels comfortable. And like one is here to make sure that no, we're actively making sure that people are a part of the people who are being oppressed are a part of this conversation. We're not here to make one or the other feel less or more comfortable. We're here to make sure people have not even, not only a seat, but a voice at the table. And they're like, uh, that's not okay. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's so interesting because when I think about John Leguizamo, I think about, so I've been teaching a long time. I always wanted to be an interpreter translator. So I, when I went to University of Chicago, I was studying linguistics. I became fluent in French and Spanish in four years and went and lived in Spain for a while. When I came out of school, I moved to France and I had gotten a job teaching. And, you know, when, when, you're, when I was applying to go and like sort of teach, this, teach at this or to become a teacher, they had a question that, that asked something along the lines of, would you be willing to teach in a high risk school? And my response to that was like, oh, yes, definitely. And in part it was like, yes, definitely. Because I'm like, OK, well, I'm from, you know, the South Side sort of like hood in Chicago. I don't want to go and teach in a private school. So when I got in, I was sort of hired to teach in one of the banlieues of Lyon, which was called Venissieux. And it was this area where basically they had all these, mostly students from Africa, from like North Africa. And what they would do is just sort of like keep them in this community. And at these schools with teachers, in my experience, a lot of teachers who really didn't care a lot about them and care a lot about their future. So it was there, there wasn't a lot of investment. And I remember building these relationships with these kids, you know, and I'm, you know, halfway around the world. And within that environment, I remember, you know, building these relationships and I'm thinking, wow, like, you know, I can't believe that I can go this far, you know, away from home and be able to meet so many black folks, you know, who are way younger than me. And we have sort of like a shared understanding around what it's like to like experience anti-blackness, to experience xenophobia, and more so in their case. And less in, less in my case, unless I was like going to different places, but to experience, unless I, like I was going to different places and people did not know that I was American. 
so to experience anti-blackness and experience racism and I thought wow you know it was like one of the first times I had been I had spent so much time away from home and it really got me thinking about why we had that shared experience because that also didn't make make a lot of sense to me it's not if I'm coming all the way over here you know and and as a black person from the south side of Chicago I know what it's like to experience racism on a daily basis. And I come to France to a banlieue, and I'm meeting all these kids who know what it's like to experience racism, who get it when, I, when they ask me about my experiences and I'm honest to understand. I'm like, what does that mean about what racism is? And so it, it definitely had a huge impact on me. At first I thought, I'll just be an interpreter, translator at the UN. And then I got to a point where I was like, you know, I actually don't want to translate like that anymore. I actually want to do something that I feel like is going to have a larger impact. So I only, was only interpreter translator for a short period of time. And then before I started teaching, like folks had to actually communicate with one another, was being hired as a consultant for people who were doing localization work in other countries. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it became another sort of evolution from, hey, this is really cool that I can <laughs> helping folks communicate with each other, but I want them to speak specifically. I want them to be having difficult conversations. And within the space that I'm in, it's so broad. They can talk about anything. And I'm like sort of enabling them to be able to, you know, communicate effectively. But I'm like, I want people to be, I want to be in the space where I'm helping people to communicate effectively about things that really matter a lot. And for me, things that really matter a lot came down to who we are as individual people, the kind of relationships that we're building and the kind of intentionality that we bring around human connection. And that for me, for me meant doing anti-oppression work and doing anti-oppression like consulting and, and um, teaching. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how do you, so you're doing that. How do you get, how do you get booked? Are people really looking to have, I just think about where I've worked and I don't know, I don't know how much they're really trying to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of like, you know, dance around it and sugarcoat it and have very, very curated, vetted, (laughs) kind of almost like safe, like safe little whatever, whether it's a town hall, whether it's a panel. It's just, even if it's this biased work that they're trying to put into whatever HR initiative, I don't feel like, I mean, I don't feel like they're, you know, doing anything creative. And I don't really feel like any uncomfortable conversations are being had. Yeah. Are people, are people now more willingly having people want an anti-oppressionist consultant come in and have these conversations within their organizations? Definitely way more than four years ago. I think four years ago, anti-oppression, people would be like, oh, hell no. I think that four years ago, folks were more like diversity and inclusion, but we're still like, oh, no, maybe, okay, kind of. And I think now what I see with nonprofit organizations specifically is how there's this move from diversity and inclusion into equity, where folks are like, we really want to have the equity conversation. We really want to have the race equity conversation. I find that when I'm doing work with organizations, they will find me like on my website or they'll find me because I've done a talk somewhere. And basically almost 100% of my work is, is based on referral. So it's not generally folks that are just like, I was just searching the internet for anti-oppression consultant. But it's okay. typically folks that are like, I've attended a, you know, workshop with McKinsey and they're like really brilliant, you know, or like, you know, I was at MoMA, which is, I've presented MoMA twice in, in, in over the course of the past two years. So I've had it happen where somebody's like, oh my gosh, I saw this person speak at, at MoMA in New York and they're amazing. And they're, you know, the way that they grasp these sort of concepts around race and anti-racism, but then do it in a way where I was really uncomfortable, but it was really informative, but I also laughed a lot. They were like, I think for me, 
it's been that way where they'll tell somebody, I'll get an email and they're like, Hey, I heard that you gave this talk or it'll be that I'm doing, I do a lot of like online education. So folks will be like, Hey, I saw that you did this webinar. I want to know if you can come to our organization and do consulting. And even when I, when I do that, I find that typically they're not telling like organization wide, they're not saying, Hey, we're bringing an anti-oppression consultant because I think for some organizations, depending on how conservative they are and how they've been built and, and how they've been built and sort of, operationalized and organized that the words anti-oppression can be really scary for a lot of people within spaces like that. So they might say something like, where do we want to do race equity work? Or, you know, we're bringing a bias educator. And I find that typically what happens is they will change the terms to fit their community, which is, you know, for me, I'm totally open to just as long as, you know, when I come in, I'm still being very honest about who I am and what I do. And I'm not changing the terms for the work that I do because I want the folks coming into the room to have some sort of a a base understanding around what to expect, which is to be uncomfortable. Yeah, that's pretty dope. I mean, that's kind of how I found out about you. And it was like, it was kind of the, the rainbow at the end of like a rainstorm. <laughs> I, was, I was doing some like, I don't even know, like I was doing some copy coaching for like this online program. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, her heart was in the right place and she wanted a more diverse team. She wanted to be more conscious about the biases that, you know, any of her coaches or even her, even her participants were having. So she brought in a bias coach. And, you know, I tried to really get with the program. And I think it was really hard for me, A, only being one of maybe two people of color on the team. So a lot of it consisted of me being off camera and like rolling my eyes. And, you know, she did her, you know, I I don't want to, I don't want to like, that work is hard. So I don't even want to try to like downplay what she did for the group. Cause she didn't have people some, have some really great conversations, but the other woman of color who was in the group, I believe she was, I can't remember, but I know she was Asian and she had, you know, if you guys wanted more work, I attended this workshop with you. And I was like, thank you. I would like to speak to this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would like to work with this person on, on, on my own end. Yeah. Because it brought up some things that I was like, oh, I, I, I would want, you know, serving who I'm serving and want to serve, want to serve who I'm serving and being, you know, white passing. I was like, I want to make sure that all my intent is out there and everyone's feeling it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's based in equity and it's not based in appropriation and it's not based in some culture that I'm using to for my own benefit. This is part of my culture as well. And so tell us some more. With that said, I found you and you helped me get my copy for my, get my wording, my copy, my messaging right. So tell us a little bit more about Radical Copy. So Radical Copy is a consultancy that I started because I started around the work that I really wanted to do when it came to like copywriting and like copy auditing, because I would find... I would find that I'd be reading somebody's copy like on a website or would be reading a brochure or something. And I come across something that was just so blatantly like racist or blatantly transphobic. And I think, I wonder who, you know, wrote this or I wonder who like read over this. And typically the answer is that when, when small businesses or when large organizations are looking for a copywriter, they're looking for, they look, they're looking for comprehension, of course, like they want to be sure what they get that final that final outcome is, is as accessible as possible, that it's easy to understand, that it speaks to their values and speaks to their values and, is, and gets it accurate, right? That gets their story right. And I think that those are the things that end up on the checklist. I think what doesn't end up on the checklist is like their biases or is like the ways in which 
folks will write copy that potentially seems com like completely fine and acceptable and totally like, you know, above board that tends to be really in a nuanced way, tends to be transphobic or tends to be anti-Black or racist. And so for me, I was like, okay, I really want to do some consulting work around this because I, this keeps happening to me where I ask myself, I wonder who read over this, you know? And in particular, read over it through a lens of anti-oppression and equity. And I found that typically the answer is no one. So I started doing that work. And so within the Radical Copy Consulting or the Radical Copy Consultancy, I work a lot with small business owners mostly in some sort of some nonprofit organizations. And there are folks who will hire me to kind of read through their copy through a lens of like anti-oppression. And so typically what I'll do when I do audits like that is actually we'll go through the copy. And then when I have particular notes around, hey, this is like inequitable or this is like based on a stereotype, then I include like sort of present contemporary references so that folks can, you know, so it's not just me saying, hey, you know, you should look, in, look into this or hey, change this. But I really want it to be the kind of experience that is a bit more holistic, where it's like not just, hey, change this and just take it out or delete it, but more so, hey, you have an opportunity actually to learn from this by reading these references, or you have an opportunity to be able to like gain better understanding and increase level of understanding so that when you come back to write this in the future, when you hire folks in the future, then you know, hey, you know what, actually in the past we've made these mistakes, you know, you have a list. So in the future, like moving forward, we're clear on the fact that this is, you know, harmful for this reason, or this is a sort of like a, a perpetuation of like a, a stereotype for this reason. So that's the work that I do with Radical Copy. And I think that's so awesome, especially in this day and age where there's been a lot of work around how to take out language or how to at least take notice of language that might be exclusive and turning to being inclusive. So what are the, those conversations like? So you, you, know, you have a company who clearly is already has some level of awareness or at least some, put some thought into this. They've come out to you, but then how are those questions, how are those conversations even had? Like, how does that usually go? Well, typically what happens is when people do come to work with me, they, I think their level expectation from reading my site or from doing sort of an introductory call with me is that the conversations are going to be really direct. So typically they're very direct. It's very like, hey, I noticed that you're saying this, but this actually is inaccurate for these reasons, or this is actually harmful for these reasons. And, and so what I'd be curious, the next question from there is like, I want to know, has this copy appeared in other places? Like, is this in a brochure only? Is it on your website? Is this something that you're sending out in newsletters or emails? Because it'd be important for you to sort of like be able to track what, what communication is going where. And if it's something, if somebody comes to me, for example, sometimes it's after the fact, where maybe they've written some company-wide email or they've released a marketing campaign and now folks are complaining and folks are like, this is harmful and this is unacceptable, then they might come to me. And in that case, it's a different situation. It's like, we want to fix this, we want to repair it. But then also we like to follow up with sending out some sort of a, a large communication, a company-wide communication or something that would be more public facing. And we want to know what we need to say. How do we communicate that, this, that we made a mistake? How do we communicate like how we're, we're, we're going to be moving forward in a better way? So typically for me, I find that it's very, very like direct. And I think that's because it's, that's a lot of because of who I am as a person. And I think in addition to that, it's because I really want to be sure that I'm not, that nobody's time is being wasted. My time is not being wasted. And then those folks who are working with me, their time is not being wasted with like, okay, let me try to sort of, in, in a way where sometimes I think can happen in conversations like this, where the person who is doing the consulting or the coaching will be really afraid to hurt the feelings of the, of the client. So they want to be like, you know, they want to sit them down and they want it to be soft and they want it to be comfortable. But I find that 
for me, the best work that I can do for a client is to allow them an opportunity to experience that discomfort and to sit with it. Recognizing that the discomfort doesn't come for me, that I could, you know, stay in the very nicest way and like talk around something or talk around like, for example, racism and copy for a really long time. And they still feel uncomfortable. And so I think it, within those conversations, it's really about me recognizing what bags are mine to hold and what bags are for, for the client to hold. And not really usurping their opportunity to be able to hold their bags and to be able to sit with the discomfort of recognizing when you've made a mistake. Wow, that's dope. It's so funny because when, when we all talked in the prep talk and when, you know, when Christina came to me and said, listen, I've, I know this bunny, she's really amazing. One of the things that really stood out about me was that your work is very much an embodiment of who you are. Yeah. So, you know, you are black and queer. You do anti-oppression work. You do equity consulting. And so it all seems as if you are truly authentic in not only who you are as a person, but also what you do. Mm -hmm. So I do want to get into a little bit about who Bunny is a little bit. Yeah. So I know you grew up in Chicago, so talk about it from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, in the Roseland neighborhood. So what we call the Wild Hundreds. (laughs) And typically in Chicago, when you say you grew up on the south side, and it's folks who are not from here, but maybe who visited, they might be like, oh, Pilsen. And you'd be like, you know, actually, Chicago going south does not end at Pilsen. There are a lot of other neighborhoods. (laughs) You know, Pilsen is cool and great. And also there are a lot of other neighborhoods, you know, that are are further south. So I, I grew up in a home with four other people three siblings and my mother who's a single mom and a nurse and who worked in, has worked in pediatrics for about 30 years, I want to say, working with babies born prematurely, also a Virgo. And, and also very organized. And for me, sort of growing up in, you know, my community, I remember we spent a lot of time at home. And in particular, I think one reason is because my mom was just very, we didn't live in the safest of neighborhoods. So she really just wanted to be sure that we were safe. And I think the only way that she could know that for sure is if we didn't really go out a lot. And really the only times that we went out or were going to different places when we were going outside of our community. So I remember when it was time for me to go to high school and I begged my mom to go to my neighborhood high school. I'm like, please, I really want to go to this high school. I really want to go. And she didn't want me to go to that high school. She was like, no, I don't want you to go to this high school. I want you to go to this other high school, which is like further away in like a near suburb, like Southwest suburb in Chicago. And a high school called the Chicago High School for Agricultural Sciences. So it's the only farm in Chicago. And at this school, you have like, it was super diverse. You have folks from all over the city who, you know, were getting bused in to go to the school and in addition to learning like the regular things you learn when you're a high school student, you learn other things like how to take care of horses and like how to harvest wheat and, you know, how to milk cows and like, wow. all yeah. So I remember the time when it was sort of time for me to really make my decision or really for my mom to make her decision because my mom made the decision. And I was like, no, mom, I really want to go to this school, this, high, this school in the neighborhood. And she was like, you're not going to go there. And I was like, well, why? And so she told me like, because you need to know what it's like to live in this world. And she's like, and you're, you're growing up. If you go to this neighborhood high school, yeah, you're going to be very comfortable. You're only going to be around black kids mostly. Maybe some Mexican kids, but mostly only black kids. And you're not going to know what it's like to live in a world with white people. 
And she's like, and I don't want you going four years without that experience because then when you go away to college, when you start a career, when you do these other things, I need you to understand how to, how to, how to survive, how to thrive and how to sort of be out here in the world and what it's really like. And so for me at the time, you know, it was really confusing. And I thought, you know, I remember I was confused, but I also remember not asking her anymore because it felt like what she had said was really powerful, was something that I couldn't fully grasp at the time. But I thought, okay, maybe, you know, I have to think about this. And I've continued to think about that, like what, what that decision meant for her and the kind of impact that that decision had on me. And I do think that going to that school and not the first time, but I think on a regular, regular basis, experiencing racism, which I don't think was her idea of like experiencing the world. I think she really just wanted me to go to a school with, with kids from all over the city of like very racial backgrounds, of various sexualities, with very gender expressions and gender identities. So I think that was really what she meant. But for that to be one part of that experience for me, it was like, wow, okay, so this is what high school is like, or this is what, is this what the world is like? I remember thinking that. So I, you know, finished my high school degree at the Ag School. And from there, I went on to the University of Chicago. And that experience was so shocking for me, such a culture shock, because I was in my city you know, on the south side of Chicago, where I had grown up and been all my life. And I was on campus at this university where there were very, very few Black students. And I think that the time, the graduation rate for Black students was like less than 5% or something, or even lower than that. And so I'm surrounded by, you know, I'm surrounded by white kids, by white students who, some of whom are like, are coming from like, you know, really small towns who have not ever seen a Black person in real life before. And so it was just like, oh my gosh, this is like really shocking and was an experience that was super difficult for me to get through because I didn't have any support. It was just kind of like being thrown into the lion's den, less academically, but more so in, like culturally. It, was, it had a huge strain on me. And sort of coming out of that experience, I think because it had been such a, such a struggle for me, I was like, okay, now I need to, I need to just be out of the city I need to get out of the state. And then it became getting out of the state became I need to get out of the country. So I was have been mentioning earlier to Christina, I went abroad and was like, I'm gonna go to France and I'm gonna go to live on the black side of town in France. And I'm gonna go and teach like in one of these bonlus where there's like all my students are students of color. And that's gonna be my life, you know, for like a year, a year and a half. So I guess that yeah, those would sum up a lot of a little bit of like what how I started, what my beginning was like. I want to pivot a little and then we'll come back to that because I think that leads to a really interesting conversation about some of the other work and just how you how you just move through your work, your life and everything in between. Now that you you did tell us about some very interesting interactions that you had with some white teachers at your school. And I think it's a perfect pivot into your program that you've I think you've done before, but you obviously recently rolled out. In Portland, yes. Oregon, of all places. I mean, I think yeah. it's a great place to do it. Um, you can't get no whiter. Can't get no whiter. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can, but... But how? But how? I, I just feel like how. Like how? Yeah. Like I, just want, I just need for proof. Sure. I need receipts for how much whiter. But tell us a little bit more about, or tell us a lot more, not a, li- a little, a lot more 
about every white woman in the history of the universe. Hashtag E-W-W-H. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that started in 2016, November 2016. And that actually, pivotal time. Yes, that pivotal, <laughs> that pivotal time. time. <laughs> what a pivotal oh. time, Deidre. <laughs> I was in a mastermind with Desiree Attaway, who is someone you don't follow. It's like a prominent sort of anti-racism educator is an incredible person. And I was transitioning between careers. So she went out and she found folks to sponsor me in this mastermind because I couldn't afford it at the time. And so I, you know, in this mastermind for six months, it's or six months, so it's it's over at this point. I think it's over, or it could have been the midway point. And so we we were tasked with creating some sort of projects that would be like a tangible step to us making this transition professionally, whatever it was for, you know, each of the different people. And so at the time I had thought, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just do some sort of a language class or something that, you know, stick to what I know. I'll do some sort of a webinar online, make it about language education. The election happens. And the day after the election, I remember folks having the 53% conversation being like, okay, there's 3% of these white women who voted for Trump and other white women who voted. And I remember going on Facebook the next day and seeing all these white women on Facebook being like, not this white woman, you know, it's those other white women. They're the issue, but not me. And it made me so, I was so irritated. And I was so irritated at how shocked folks on Facebook, like white folks on Facebook were. And that for me was like, wow, so you all really, really don't see this white supremacy. You know what I'm like? And I didn't realize, I think at the time, four years ago, I didn't realize to, to, to what extent I mean, of course, I had a number of experiences within corporate and had a number of experiences within like my academia, but sort of seeing so many folks be so, so many white folks be so crushed by it because of the level of privilege that they, you know, hold was just like, wow, okay. And so I was thinking about this and I thought, okay, I think I know what I'm going to do. And I had a call scheduled with Desiree later that day. So Desiree calls me and she's like, okay, now's your deadline. Remember I told you you need to tell me what was going to be your project. And so I'm on the phone with her and I say, okay, Desiree, I know what project is going to be. It's going to be every white woman in the history universe. It's going to be a training, 60 minutes, a webinar online about white women's sort of complicity within whiteness and with, with white supremacy. And she got really quiet on the phone for like maybe a few seconds. And then she just bust out laughing over, over the phone. And she just was like, okay, <laughs> well, I'm going to support that. You can go write that copy and you let me know what it's up <laughs> and I will share it. So I did, it went viral. And then I ended up having, it ended up selling out like 10 times over. And I actually also at the time thought, you know, it was paid and then my actual tickets, because I, at the time I was being really, really satirical. So the actual tickets, it was not that bright too. For folks to purchase, you were like white women, kind of like tickets. And, <laughs> you know, the drop down. So I thought, I thought, oh my gosh, we're probably going to get so much hate mail from this or <laughs> people trying to, you know, trying to swap me or something. And then what ended up happening is I had so many folks who attended, not only white women, but also I offered a lot of scholarships to, to, to black and brown folks and indigenous folks. And was like, hey, come to this. Like mostly my friends, mostly like my queer friends and trans friends. I was like, hey, just come to this. So you don't have to pay, but like, I just thought maybe this will offer you something or you feel like you can be in the space or whatever. So I had a lot of folks of color who came too, but they just, I just didn't charge them anything. And, you know, I went through this content filled with a lot of gifts and memes and also a lot of like just hard, hard and really, I won't say hard, but I'll say a lot of like, a lot of just complete truths around the history of America. 
and the founding of, of this country on the backs of enslaved African peoples. And so like went through all that content and everything. And at the end, I think this part was like more inspiration for my Virgo mama. Because I, I, you know, ended the webinar and then I had a link so people could go and like actually fill out a feedback form. And when I read through the feedback, a lot of the folks were like, wow, this was like watching The Daily Show live. It was like, it was informative. I was extremely, extremely uncomfortable. And also I laughed a lot and that they were like, that for me was really surprising because I wasn't expecting that. So at the time I thought, okay, I think I might be onto something because I wasn't, that wasn't the plan. I was just really frustrated when I created the content. (laughs) And so like I was sort of creating this presentation based on what kind of presentation I would like to be in. And as somebody who it's, it's hard for me to really stay focused on something if it's not really, really engaging and like interesting. And there's not like, I don't feel like my brain is sort of being, I don't feel like my brain is sort of being challenged to think about things in a different way. So that's the kind of presentation that I created. And that was in 2016. And now in 2019, I decided to bring the presentation back. So for a workshop in Portland, Oregon and a workshop online. And one of the reasons I decided to do it was first because it had been so popular in 2016. I was going to jokingly say back in the day, but of course it was only 2016, but it feels like forever ago. So I was going to, you know, I had done that before. It had been successful. And then in 2019, I thought, well, maybe this time I shouldn't wait until after the election, but I should do it before and sort of try to get ahead of the conversations that we're going to be having, you know, not just this year, but soon for the coming election in 2020. And so I did it again just three weeks ago, I want to say. And what was the response? I don't know if you've gotten your feedback survey again, but what was not only the response in the room, the interactions, or the demographics, and, and how do you think, or if things have changed? Well, let's start with that. Have things changed since 2016? I think that, I think what's changed is I think that there is a, a larger amount of white folks who have gained awareness around race and racism. I think that on the internet four years ago, I was seeing more folks saying things like, racism can't be real. You know, because I don't see it every day or whatever it is that people say to deflect, whatever distancing behaviors that people you know, engaged in that were more commonplace, I think, four years ago. And I think that now, and I'm saying four years ago, but it hasn't been a complete four years, but nearly four years ago. I think that now what's happening is there are a lot more white people who will hear something like that will actually intervene and be like, no, actually it is. And here's five references, you know, that I can read to you, that I can show you, that I can share with you. Here's a video you need to watch. So I think in terms of public media, it's a lot has changed. I think that if somebody wanted to make videos about anti-racism and put it on Facebook or like do sort of daily videos about anti-racism, I think that they will be labeled really quickly as being like somebody who's like not to be trusted or not you know, trustworthy. And that doesn't mean that black folks haven't been doing this work forever. We have. But I think in terms of the way that it's been received, I think that there was a huge shift in terms of like digital media and the ways in which folks then, I think out of outrage, that black and brown folks, especially indigenous folks, especially were like, you know what? I'm not meaning myself anymore. And on Twitter, I'm gonna take it out of my profile that my opinions are my own. Because wherever I'm working, I hope that I'm working in a place where they get, they hold interesting as a value. So I'm, I'm gonna, Start talking about race more openly and anti-racism more openly on my Instagram, my Facebook, on my Twitter, whatever, because I'm tired. And so I think that has opened sort of like the, the, the floodgates in the best possible way when it comes to folks seeking out a lot of healing, I think, by being really honest about their experiences with racialized oppression. 
And that for me is somebody who, you know, does the majority of my work on the internet and, you know, leverages a lot of like pop culture and digital media in order to like communicate with folks about anti-oppression is, has been really exciting to sort of see that, that growth in a very short period of time. I think that's, that's dope. I'm, I'm happy to hear that progress has been made because sometimes it feels like with what's going on in the world and what's going on in this country that you really can't gauge mm-hmm. if people are just more open about their insert phobias here or if, you know, people actually, people who have been quiet and complacent are actually being a little bit more active in their support of those who can and historically have been marginalized. So that's, yeah. that's positive to hear. Definitely. I mean, because like you said, there's so many things happening. I think it can be very easy to just be exhausted, <laughs> to be like, are we even moving forward? And for me, in terms of this specific context, I'm like, yeah, we are. I mean, the fact that you could have an AOC... <laughs> you know, as a prominent political figure, speaking very openly and honestly about class, about race and gender in America as a woman of color is incredible. You know, the fact that she can have an Elan exist and not only be very honest about um, racism in America, but then also be very honest about the failings of the Democratic Party. As a black woman, you know, as a prominent public figure is amazing. So um, for me, I'm like, okay, you're definitely, there's definitely been wins. And I think there's also, you know, over the course of the, since 2016, over the course of the, the time that we've experienced since that last election, I think there's a lot of folks also who I think are getting a lot of healing. I think also that's something that's been interesting for me is, you know, on platforms like Instagram, where you can find a lot more Black folks talking about healing from like racism. You can find a lot more like folks of color, a lot more LGBTQ plus folks talking about what it means to be, to experience liberation or to to pursue a liberatory life. And these are things that I think five years ago, a lot of these words were things that we didn't even, we weren't even thinking about, like in terms of like identity and like healing and liberation. I think there are a lot of us who weren't really thinking about it in that way. I mean, of course, you know, you grew up in, and you know what it's like to be marginalized for your race, for your sexuality, for your gender identity, gender expression. But I think sometimes it, it can feel really isolating to, to hear about your oppression and to be an expert in, in your oppression, but to not know what it means to be an expert in your liberation. So for me, that's been exciting to sort of, to, as, as somebody, as an individual person who's on my own journey, but then also to see a lot of other folks of color on their, on their journeys too, and to also see white folks who are on very different journeys, but in terms of also recognizing that, albeit in a very different intensity, in a very different way, that they have also experienced harm as folks who like are also used as tools by white supremacy to like bring about harm and marginalization within black and brown communities. So for me, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people learning a lot of things all at once. And what's come out of that is a number of nonprofit organizations, a number of nonprofit collectives that are being very, very honest about what their work is and that are not sort of attempting to make their missions palatable for a white audience who are like, no, actually, to be very honest, the folks that I'm focused on are not white people. That's not who I'm here to help. And that I think is like the, the level of courage and also the level of like candor is, is definitely amplifying within those public sort of digital spaces. So that for me is like, wow, this is, this is exciting. This is 
healing for me just to be able to witness it. It's, it's reinvigorating and it, and it feels um, incredibly inspiring. Yeah. I totally see. Yeah. To everyone's point, it's just like really interesting. You feel like you're going backwards, but then you just like, just throw in anything into Google, like around this work and you'd be like, Oh, that probably wasn't even really yeah, there definitely. before. So mm-hmm. could you speak a little to, and just having this conversation that I think is now becoming a part of, now becoming a part of race work, equity work, like the subtle, the subtle imperialism or the colonialism around gender identity. And like, I mean, honestly, I think before like two years ago or three years ago, like I it's not that you weren't aware of it. Like there was many times that I knew like if someone was like, oh, you're doing this like a girl or this is like when things became gender, gender oppressive in language, I was like, what the fuck you mean? Like, I'd be like, I'm sorry. What are you even saying? And just like people, just like in random things or just seeing the way things are marketed and just all these interesting things that you start picking up. How much of, of this gender work is a part of not only radical copy, but what you're doing with boundary work, what you do with, you know, your second iteration of every white woman in the history of the universe. And just like your day-to-day life, you, you know, I mentioned in the beginning your pronouns or introduced you as they, them, and their. How important is that now more than ever in this conversation of like the subtle imperialism of gender identity? Well, I think that it's, you know, it's definitely always been, it always has existed. It's always been important. I think that what would make it even more salient now would be the fact that for a lot of folks who are now coming to this awareness around race and around what oppression is, that it's important for folks to have an understanding that oppression as a, as a system, as a model is pretty stagnant. So like the ways in which if, if I were to study like the ways in which Black folks are marginalized in Brazil and also compare that to the ways in which trans folks, Black trans folks are marginalized according to like their transness, their gender identity, their gender expression in Minnesota, I would find a lot of similarities. Now, of course, depending on the, the ways in which those folks are being marginalized, the ways in which policies are being enacted to, to destroy those communities, to keep those folks from accessing quality healthcare, quality education, et cetera. I mean, we find a lot of, there'd be a lot of nuances, but in terms of the ways in which the systems of oppression attempt to marginalize and attempt to disenfranchise, there's a lot of similarities. And I think that sometimes when folks are doing anti-racism work, they're like, okay, I'm doing anti-racism work, but I can't focus on gender because I just need to focus on the anti-racism. Like I need to do one thing at a time. And I think there can be some, there can be something said around the importance of focusing on a single thing and being able to like really become, you know, attempting to do your best to become as well-versed as you can in the moment on that subject. But also I think folks need to understand that there are always intersections. And so if, if even for a person that's focused their work on anti-racism, you have to understand that the ways in which, right, a cishet black man is oppressed is going to be completely amplified and intensified, right, on several levels when we're thinking about the ways in which a black trans woman is oppressed. And of course, it's going to be, okay, so we know this woman is being oppressed based on her transness. I mean, right, so we understand that. This woman is going to be oppressed based on her race. And we know for folks, maybe if she's cis-passing, we know she's also going to be oppressed based on the fact that she's woman presenting, right? So I think for developing levels of understanding around the ways in which the intersections matter and how they matter, and then also how the behavior changes based on those intersections. So a conversation that 
I've been having recently with one of the folks that I love is around the ways in which white women will attempt to treat black men with more respect or, or, or in a performance, performative way, will attempt to, to treat black men and black mass presenting people with more respect when black women or black women presenting people are present. So it's like, okay, these are white people, right? Both those groups of folks understand what it's like to experience racism. And yet at the same time, if a cishet black man is like doing more work around anti-racism and understanding what dismantling white supremacy looks like, you know, as a cishet black man in America, they're going to miss a whole lot if they don't also seek to understand what it means to dismantle white supremacy or to use one's male privilege as a black man to dismantle whiteness and white supremacy in rooms where potentially the black trans women in those, in those rooms, the cis black women in those rooms are being treated poorly, right? Or where their sort of male privilege as black man is being used against black trans women to make them feel small, to diminish them, to erase them. And so that's like complex and also something that people experience every day. And I think it's like anything, it's about sort of gaining the vocabulary and then also gaining an understanding of the, of the way in which the models are exactly the same because a black man knows what it's like to be treated as a lesser as a lesser human being when a white man is present. And so it's like, well, if you were to apply that, not to say that you, you're you saying that you understand because you can imagine it, what it's like for a black trans woman, but if you were to apply it to the experience of a black trans woman, you might be able to have an understanding of like, this is how I'm treated. What would that look like in a room where a black trans woman is present and there are a lot of trans people in that room. There's a lot of like folks who are centering masculine identity who think that to be masculine or to be a man means that you're better than anyone else of any other gender identity expression in the room. What would that look like within that space? And typically it would look like the same things that it looks like for a black man, which would be ignoring that person. You know, if it's a corporate space, it means when that person has ideas that are, they present those ideas, suddenly somehow you know, the black man at the table, whether he says it or not, you know, says it or not, or, or claims it for himself or not, suddenly somehow the folks in that room are attributing those good ideas that have been presented by the black trans woman as being ideas from a black man. Or it could be potentially, you know, it's time to get a raise. And there are a lot of folks within the space that have gotten a raise and the black trans woman is offered a gift card instead of a raise, you know, $100 to go to Chick-fil-A or something. So it's like things like that that we think, I think talking about it, we're like, oh yeah, that'd be ridiculous. That's terrible, right? Like that's clearly like transphobic. And I think it's about really also putting ourselves in a space to recognize that the systems, the system that we see, uh, the system of oppression that we recognize and are learning about and understanding when it comes to racism is a very, very similar system of oppression when it comes to transphobia. It's a very similar oppression when it comes to homophobia. It's a very similar system of oppression when it comes to ableism that comes down to erasure, to diminishing a person, to making them feel small, to using other folks who are more privileged in the room against that person so that there's a very clear distinction between how the folks with the least privilege in the room are being treated and how the folks with maybe a little bit more privilege than a little bit more privilege in the room are being treated or the folks who have the most privilege in the room are being treated. And I really feel like in this day and age that we as individual people and as communities have to give ourselves more credit. Because I think a lot of times we think I, I can't possibly, you know, I couldn't possibly work on do the gender conversation or address the gender conversation. And it's like, but you have, you know, you, you have because you're a human being living in this world. So maybe you're not leading, you know, leading conversations or leading workshops, but you've been in the room when someone has experienced transphobia. You've more than likely have said something that was transphobic without realizing it. You have, you know, been in a space where maybe 
you're addressing a crowd and you're like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, and not realizing, oh, actually, you know, I was participating in like a system of harm by not acknowledging that there are more than two genders and sort of assuming that by, by looking at people in the crowd, I would know what their gender identities were, what their gender expressions were. And so I think for, for me, what I find and what I enjoy doing a lot of my work is being able to draw those parallels so that people understand, hey, this is actually, these are actually things you've seen many, many times. What's changed is the, the folks who are being marginalized, are the folks who are being targeted. But the ways in which oppression works haven't. And the ways in which it's operationalized and, and organized hasn't changed, but what's changed is like the people on the other end. And I think for folks to be able to gain an even deeper understanding, for example, of anti-racism work, they have to, they have to do a deep dive into gender or else, you know, they're really putting themselves in a position to sort of perpetuate harm under the guise of like doing good or under the name of like, you know, doing diversity work or doing equity work, which is really important. Wow, thank you so much. Because I think oftentimes when you are marginalized, it can be sometimes a gift and a curse when dealing with other differences. Mm -hmm. Because you can relate, but then you often sometimes forget that your the way that you are oppressed might be different from the way others are oppressed. Yeah. And you as oppressed an oppressed person can also be contributing to the oppression of others. Yeah, for sure. But I think it's 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 definitely helpful to know that when it comes to how others express their gender, we all should be mindful about preferences. It's the way I don't want to be called out of my name. Someone else doesn't want to be called out of their name. Yeah. And just always keeping that at the forefront. And I th- and I think it comes down to if I may add to what you said in addition to what you said. I think that a lot of times, too, no matter what your gender identity is, no matter what your gender expression is, I think it's also really empowering ourselves to, to claim it as an obligation and not a preference. Because it's like, you know, actually, you know, my name is my name. <laughs> so, like, when you address me, you just got to call me by my name. And it's not like a, it's not something that I prefer for you to do. It's like, it's, you know, it's just something you just got to do. It is, yeah. And so I do really sort of appreciate that, that point that you just made and you can bring that up. I think, listen, it's also important for us to recognize that, you know, when you, when we were just talking earlier about how things are changing, I love reality TV. So I'm always going to be talking about reality TV and I use a lot of like Real Housewives of Atlanta gifts in my work. I'm just like, <laughs> open and honest about that. But we have to think about reality TV and the ways in which folks usually talk about reality, which is like, oh yeah, trash talk, trash TV, you know, that stuff that'll, you know, if we're talking to like an older person, like a grandmother, in, in my case, who's like, that will ruin your brain or, you know, that's not the best thing to be watching. I mean, my grandmother never said that. She loved reality TV, but I'm sure other <laughs> So if we think about, you know, shows like Love and Hip Hop, which I love Love and Hip Hop. And we know that, I know that when I sit down and watch Love and Hip Hop, I'm not watching Love and Hip Hop because I think it's, you know, National Geographic. I'm watching it because I know that it's, it's, you know, about, mostly about rich, you know, folks of color in music or rich folks of color who are surrounding music. And I know that there's surrounding the sort of music entertainment business. I know there's going to be a lot of drama. I know there's going to be a lot of conflict, et cetera, et cetera. I, I know to expect that from Love and Hip Hop. But if we think about the fact that on the most recent season of Love and Hip Hop Miami, one of the folks they had a Love and Hip Hop Miami as a guest, as a guest feature this year was Toronto Burke. And they actually were talking about the Me Too movement 
And I think Tarana was on at least two episodes and was leading a workshop around Me Too. And they included it in the episode and aired it. And I'm just like, that's amazing, right? And that's for something that we, I think that in terms of like entertainment, that folks will consider to be like, oh, this is not like high caliber. But if, if, you know, in a very classist way, we'll say this is not high caliber. And I think that, you know, in, in that case, we're like, okay, wow, that's, that's progress. Because that wouldn't have happened. First of all, folks weren't even recognizing the work that Toronto Burke, you know, has been doing for a very long time until right. very recently. And had been sort of attributing her work to white women. So that's number one, is that not only is she's a public figure that we know, but then also the fact that she would be in this space where this is a show watched by so many, so many Black and brown folks. But in addition to that, it was watched by a lot of young people too, is incredible. And then if we think about that Love and Hip Hop New York on the most recent season of Love and Hip Hop New York, that an actual sort of cast member this year was a Black trans woman by the name of Sydney Starr, who also happens to be from Chicago, from the South Side of Chicago. And so when you think about that, it's like, wow, in terms of like digital media and in terms of like what we're embracing now that I think before a lot of folks were not willing to accept or a lot of folks were like, you know, why would we accept trans folks or why would we have, oh, we have the conversation around sexual assault, around patriarchy, around what it means to be a woman in this world and what it means to protect women's bodies in this world. You know, now we've gotten to a point where those are conversations that are being had in far more public spaces and in spaces that I think a lot of us probably wouldn't have considered them considered them to be sort of conversations that would be addressed within on those platforms and within those spaces. So I'm like, that, those are big and huge wins. And I think especially huge wins for when we think about all these folks of color, like kids of color and teens of color who are watching this and who are getting this information and getting this exposure to trans folks, to Black trans folks, who are getting this exposure to like women of color that are healing from having experienced sexual assault at one time in their lives and just being deserving of that healing. It's like, that's a huge thing. So for me, when I see those things, I'm thinking like, wow, like we've come a really long way in a short period of time. And of course, you know, we're all on this journey for the rest of our lives. So it's still always going to be more for us to learn, which is only going to help to make us better people and only going to make to help us build, you know, more loving and anti-oppressive communities. But that for me has definitely been making me feel encouraged lately. And then I think when it comes to my own gender identity as someone who identifies as being non-binary, which means that I don't, I don't identify as being like woman, I don't identify as being a man, but it's just kind of like this non-binary is like, for me has always felt like more of a space that was like my identity and for me. And that for me has been interesting navigating that too, you know, as like a, a hood girl, which I will always be a hood girl, right? And I, see, I say that with like in a very political, with a very political tone and a very political concept of what it means to be a, a Black sort of person who's a sign girl at birth, who, you know, is growing up in the wild hundreds on the far side of Chicago. And because of the way that oppression and marginalization works, has no idea about gender. I think, you know, up until I want to say like late sort of like high school years and that was not really thinking about sexuality or anything like that. For me to be able to think that there are folks who are growing up now who could turn on the TV to something that they really enjoy watching. It's just like very like, you know, to see folks who are being represented, who they understand or who they feel an affinity with and to be able to get access to those stories of LGBTQ plus folks who are black and brown within those communities. It's like, wow, that's a, that's a really huge thing. And I'm like, wow, what, what would have happened if I had gotten that exposure? <laughs> like, you know, a Toronto Burke of my time when I was younger, being able to see that and, and to see her be honored and respected 
and to see her work honored and respected and the experiences of the women she's helping be honored and respected is like that's that's a, that's really huge i think that we should really just kind of end on that note because what better note to end on than the fact that we have come so far despite sometimes minor setbacks sometimes major setbacks but mm-hmm. as a culture once the media starts to embody aspects of the community then you know that we have actually moved further than either of us might want to think yeah definitely all right so one of the things that we do because i feel like we've had a very heavy you know informative think thought-provoking conversation is we like to end on a very positive or a little lighter note so we used to call them rapid fire questions they never happen quickly. <laughs> so we got to figure out some branding around that. Intended to be quick questions. Right, but we always dive deeper. Y'all so. gotta go home, but y'all got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> exactly. So we have a couple questions, and we hope that this will be as enjoyable for you as it is usually for us. Okay. All good. right. I'm ready. So we are called Bagels and Plantains. Mm-hmm. And so if you were a food... What food would you be? Deepish pizza. That is yes. so Chicago of you. That is so <laughs> Chicago of you. <laughs> Deepish not going to get into why deep dish pizza is not the is, is it you who fought me on this? That's not pizza? I might have. Okay. I do have very strong feelings. Because in Italy, the pizza is very thin. So even in New York, I feel like we're doing it at the surface <laughs> with all that crust. So now we go to Chicago. I feel like it's a lasagna in a crust. Well, I'm not going to get into that. That's what a lot of people say, yeah. I'm not going to get into that. You know, <laughs> that's a New York versus Chicago thing, but I love Chicago <laughs> yeah, very <right>. much. <laughs> All right. So what's your favorite place to be creative? Oh, my gosh. In my bed. Huh. And, like, I mean, on my computer, keeping this above board. <laughs> and, I, and I say that because I find that I'm most, I don't know, it's just something, I will wake up out of my sleep with, like, the best of ideas. And I'll, I also my Capricorn moon, so without, it's very important that I sort of am careful about that. I don't work too much. But I'll keep my computer by my bed, and I also just have a phone full of notes of me waking up out of my sleep and having had these, you know, really vivid dreams and sort of writing my dreams down. That's dope. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would it be? Ferocious. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then what is the one thing you want our listeners to know about you? To work with me, go to www.mckinseymack.com. That's a great pivot. Perfect. <laughs> the only guest we've ever had that has used that opportunity to plug themselves. Right. And for that, I thank you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, you know, got to let people know what the, how to find you, where to find you. Yes. And we'll put all that in the show notes, especially your new work. We didn't get to it, but that boundaries. Oh, no, I might be signing up for that boundaries. That would be beautiful. <laughs> the boundaries That's work. Bad. Deidre, no, I need some boundaries work. <laughs> Just saying. Speaking of, no, let me stop. I'm not going to bring my personal life into this. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> but we will link all that good stuff in there. And it was so great having you on. I feel like I learned a lot today. For real. That makes me feel so good and so happy. Yes. yes. And I feel, I feel really good. And I know our listeners are going to get out there and, and do some Googling, y'all. It's at your fingertips now. No excuse to walk around blindly out here. Everything you need is out here or with Bunny McKenzie Mack. I'm about exactly. to say, if, well, I don't even know where we're saying Google it. You've got the, you got the web address. We got yeah. the plug. We, we have where to find Bunny. Let's, yeah, let's get it. 
Thank you for tuning in to Bagels and Plantains with your girls Deidre and Christina. If you like the flavor we're kicking in your ear and want to know more about upcoming guests, follow us on the gram at Bagels and Plantains. If you want to show us even more love, then don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or drop a little of that coin into the support bucket at our Patreon link below in our show notes so we can keep bringing you the latest and the greatest. Thank you again for tuning in.